to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Here are the facts. War is a tragic business, one which virtually guarantees widespread casualties and immense destruction. The smallest events can trigger a war. In modern times, nations have attempted to define internationally accepted rules for war. Through agreements such as the Hague Laws and the Geneva Conventions, the United Nations has built formal guidelines for armed conflict. Violations of these laws, such as genocide, are considered war crimes. Yet not all violations are so clear-cut. Consider the false flag attack. Here's how it works. Combatants in war are often required to wear insignia depicting their allegiance, but a military vehicle, organization, or individual might hide their own insignia or even replace it with their enemy's symbols to infiltrate enemy lines. And this could go even further. What if one side in a war disguises itself and attacks someone else, such as the Red Cross? Or what if a country uses a false flag attack to wage war on itself? Here's where it gets crazy. False flag attacks aren't as implausible as they might sound. While conspiracy theories swirl around some conflicts, for example, the inside job theories about everything from Pearl Harbor to the 9-11 bombing or the 1898 destruction of the USS Maine, there have also been verified false flag attacks and many more suspected examples. In the 1931 Mukden incident, the Japanese army allegedly sabotaged a Japanese-owned railway in China and then used the explosion as an excuse to invade. Today, this is widely accepted as a false flag attack. Historians have also uncovered evidence of false flag attacks by the Nazi party, both during the burning of the Reichstag in 1933 and in Operation Himmler. In the 1950s, Israel's defense minister was forced to resign in the wake of an operation known as the Levon Affair, wherein operatives conducted bombings in Egypt in hopes of discrediting the Egyptian government. In the early 1960s, the United States allegedly planned a false flag attack codenamed Operation Northwoods. Under this plan, the military would commit acts of terrorism as a way to drum up public support for a war on Cuba. This plan allegedly included bombing targets in the United States, killing Cuban nationals, and hijacking airplanes. In Body of Secrets, author James Bamford claims the plans for Operation Northwoods were drawn up by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and presented to Defense Secretary Robert McNamara in 1962. Fortunately, the plans were rejected. But were they America's only brush with false flag tactics? Consider the USS Maddox incident. Historians still debate whether this was a purposeful plot to drum up support for a war in Vietnam or simply a miscommunication. Declassified documents have shown that senators of the time questioned the Maddox claims and evidence suggests the NSA may have faked some data to cover up earlier mistakes. There's an important distinction here, and it's one of intent. A false flag attack is one in which operatives purposefully try to lay blame at someone else's doorstep. 
Unfortunately, the fog of war, the inability to communicate quickly and accurately during conflicts, can all too often result in disastrous mistakes, from friendly fire to accidental bombings. While false flag attacks are not legal under the laws of war, they have certainly occurred across the globe and throughout history, although perhaps not as often as some theorists might believe. It can be difficult to determine the difference between a false flag attack or an honest mistake, and that's no surprise. After all, if a government or a military launches a false flag attack, it's almost certainly something they don't want you to know. Stay tuned. I don't know how Alex Jones lives with himself. And, and, and to be fair to Alex Jones, it's not just him. The NRA has uh, created this environment. Uh, Richard Murdoch, former uh, gov uh, Senate um, candidate, saying that uh, we're about to become um, Nazi Germany because of our debt. In this video, I'm going to try and answer some questions that people have about NLP. So just a bit about my background. I have a science background and spent 12 years at University of WA as a laboratory technician. One of my roles was also um, departmental photographer, hence my uh, interest in uh, making YouTube videos. And while working at UWA, I was also studying psychology part-time at Curtin and then Murdoch Universities. But I, um, I burned out. I burned out from working myself into the ground. So I had to drop out. I then got involved with a uh, meditation group 
and that was when the real journey of self-discovery began. I was introduced to uh, NLP and hypnosis by an American psychologist who was part of that group. Um, she ran a course on psychic skills, which was a really, really interesting course because it was exploration of consciousness. It was really good. Anyway, so what is NLP? NLP, it's a uh, model of applied psychology. And as Richard Bandler puts it, it is a modeling methodology. So psychiatrists and psychologists, they tend to focus on why someone has a problem. NLP is more results oriented and um, an NLP is not so much interested in why someone has a problem, just in achieving a desired outcome. And what Richard Bandler noticed was that um, a top salesperson would hold a sales training workshop, for example. Um, yet the result was the normal, you know, the normal distribution curve. So some participants made little improvement, most made average improvement, while a few ex um, excelled. So this indicated that the salesperson, that the trainer, didn't understand how his mental processes made him the successful person that he was. And this isn't just about salespeople, it's about anybody who's at the top of the profession. Um, Typically, they don't really understand what makes them a success. They'll give all sorts of explanations, but it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so what NLPs did and still do to a certain extent was to model out the mental processes that people at the top of their profession used, and then you transfer those processes to other people. What NLPs did and still do to a certain extent, was to model out the mental processes that people at the top of their profession used. And then you transfer those processes to other people. And the results achieved have been absolutely amazing. I've helped people stop gambling. One, one to our session, the gamblers who spending a thousand dollars a week um and i've followed them up long term too right and i've also helped people quit you know smoking marijuana in a couple of hours and there was one guy he said he just knew how much i smoked and he took 90 90 minutes for that guy and there have been a number of times where i've helped people quit alcohol in as little as four hours you know these were hardcore drinkers you know on one occasion, it was only a two-hour session. So, but as each person is actually different, you know, there's always exceptions. So with other people, it has taken longer. And it is always really useful to for you, get your clientele to um, have additional um, coaching sessions to sustain their outcomes. But anyway, the point is, if there's one person in the world who can do something, if there is one person in the world who has achieved something, then the outcome may also be possible for you. Um, in brief, what you have to do is look at the NLP well-formed outcome um, questions. And that's in my other videos. It's on my website for you to have a look at. Anyway, before we go any further, I need to make a point. NLP is a modeling process that leaves behind a trail of techniques. 
But often when people think of NLP, they often think of the techniques. This sucks. <laughs> and I even saw an article on the internet just a few days ago with this statement. This is the first words of this great big article. It says NLP is a technique. No, NLP is not a technique. NLP is a modeling methodology. NLP is a model of applied psychology that gives you a way of looking at the world and making ecological changes. Okay, so enough said about that. So who founded NLP? Let's have a look at the uh, website. Who founded NLP? So Richard Bandler is credited with discovering the NLP modeling process in the early 1970s when he inadvertently modeled Fritz Perls. According to John Grinder, Bandler and Frank Puslik were highly skilled in both modeling and Gestalt therapy by the time he started working with them in 1974. John was originally co-opted to turn what Bandler and Puslik had, uh, could already do into a coherent model they could teach to others. Credit also needs to be given to a host of other co-developers who played a part in its development as a field. Bandler went on to develop design human engineering, Grinder developed a new code NLP, Anthony Robbins developed neuroassociative conditioning, Michael, Hel Michael L. Hall developed neurosemantics, and many others have developed their own change models based upon the original NLP model. If you have an interest in studying NLP, it's recommended that you study some of the early books and training materials in order to gain understanding of the spirit in which NLP was created. And I'll actually make a video at some time. I'll go through a lot of the earlier books and it's really worth watching some of the older videos that um, Richard Bandler made back around 1987. Okay, so what is neurolinguistic programming, shortened to NLP. NLP is a behavioral and cognitive psychology that grew out of the human potential movement of the 1960s. Some of the key players in the human potential movement were William James, Aldous Huxley, Carl Rogers, Victor Frankl, Fritz Perls, Virginia Satir, Gregory Bates, and Moshe Feldenkrais. NLP was also developed at a time where hypnosis was not looked upon favorably by the mainstream psychology and medical professions. NLP then became a way to covertly employ hypnosis. So for me back in the um, mid eighties, it was illegal for anyone but a registered psychologist to practice hypnosis. So that was one of the motivators for me to come across to the east coast of Australia. Um, okay, so NLP and neurology from neurology, our senses, that's the abstractors, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory, that's the V-A-K-O-G, are the closest contact we have with the territory and abstract the information. Linguistics refer to the way that language affects our perception of the world and creates behaviours. Programming refers to the notion that the neural network pathways are programmed to work in predictable ways. NLP is a methodology of modeling. It is the process of recognizing patterns of excellence and defining them in such a way that others can use them. NLP requires both an attitude of curiosity and scientific but playful approach to experiment beyond the traditional paradigms. NLP is not so much interested in the why, but in the how to get results. And when you think of it, someone has a health problem, 
They don't care why. They just want to get a. They just want to get healthy. Someone you know is poor. They don't care why they're poor. They want to know how to make money. Okay, so major influences on NLP are as follows: general semantics, non-Aristotelian systems. Alfred Korzybski. It's worth reading his books. They're pretty heavy, but they're really interesting. That's where we get the uh, term: the map is not the territory. Transformational grammar. It's an evolution from general semantics. A change in the structure of language affects behavior. So you do a link, learn to do a linguistic analysis. It's in the words. It's in what people say. Logical levels. Step to an ecology of mind. Gregory Bateson. Um, stimulus response conditioning with Ivan Pavlov. Family therapy. Virginia says here um, from where we get the meta model um, hypnosis. So it's Milton H. Erickson. He was a medical hypnotherapist um, of the last century, the Milton model, Gestalt therapy, Fritz Perls, Roddy Work, Moshe Feldenkrais, and this physics. This is stuff from Richard Bannon, laser technology and foray patents. He was very much into that. Uh, systems theories, like strategies. You know, we are. We all use strategies. My name is Sebastian. I'm the author of Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited, Ambient Abuse, also known as Gaslighting. He's the stealth, subtle, underground current of maltreatment that sometimes goes unnoticed even by the victim herself until it is too late. Ambient abuse penetrates and permeates everything, but it is difficult to pinpoint and identify. Gaslighting is ambiguous, equivocal, atmospheric, diffuse, hence its insidious and pernicious effects. It is by far the most dangerous kind of abuse there is. Ambient abuse or gaslighting, they are the outcomes of fear. Fear of violence, fear of the unknown, fear of the unpredictable, the capricious, the arbitrary, the pending. Ambient abuse is perpetrated by dropping subtle hints, by disorienting, by constant and unnecessary lying, by persistent doubting and demeaning, and by inspiring um, an air of unmitigated gloom and doom.
And the interviews, therefore, is the fostering, the propagation and the enhancement of an atmosphere of fear, of intimidation, of instability. renders herself exposed even more to criticism and judgment. In ambient abuse, the roles are reversed. The victim is considered by everyone to be mentally deranged and unstable, and the abuser is universally acclaimed as the suffering soul and victim. There are five categories of ambient abuse, and they are often combined in the conduct of the same abuser. First of all, there is inducing disorientation. The abuser causes the victim to lose faith in her ability to manage and to cope with the world and with its demands. She no longer trusts her own senses, her skills, she doubts her skills, she doubts her strengths, she doubts her family, doubts her friends. She doubts fundamentally the predictability and benevolence of her environment. The abuser subverts the target's focus by disagreeing with her way of perceiving the world, by arguing with her judgment, by disputing the facts of her existence, by criticizing her incessantly, and by offering plausible, but specious, wrong, fallacious alternatives. The abuser constantly lies, and by constantly lying, he blurs the line between reality and nightmare. By recurrently disapproving of her choices and actions, the abuser shreds the victim's self-confidence and shatters her self-esteem. By reacting disproportionately to the slightest mistake she makes, he intimidates her to the point of paralysis. Second type of gaslighting is incapacitating. The abuser gradually and surreptitiously takes over functions and chores previously adequately and skillfully performed by the victim. The victim finds herself isolated from the outer world, a hostage to the goodwill, or more often the ill will, of the abuser, of her captor. She is crippled by his encroachment and by the inexorable dissolution of her boundaries, and she ends up totally dependent on her tormentor's whims and desires, plans and strategies. She needs his permission to go out to the world and to interact with anyone. Moreover, the abuser engineers impossible, dangerous, and unpredictable situations that are unprecedented or highly specific. And in these situations, he makes sure that he is sorely needed. The abuser leverages his knowledge, his skill, his connections, or his traits as the only applicable and the most useful ones in the situations that he himself has engineered. The abuser generates thus his own indispensability, and fosters in the victim growing dependence. The third type of ambient abuse is what is known as shared psychosis, or previously 
It was called Folie à deux in French. The abuser creates a fantasy world. And in this fantasy world, uh, this fantasy world is inhabited by himself and by his victim. And it is besieged by imaginary enemies invented by the abuser. He allocates to the abused, to the victim, the role of defending this invented and surreal universe. She must swear to secrecy. She must stand by her abuser no matter what. She must lie, fight, pretend, obfuscate, and do whatever it takes to preserve this oasis of inanity and insanity. Her membership in the abuser's kingdom is cast as a privilege and a prize, but it is not to be taken for granted. She has to work hard to earn her continued affiliation in his world. She is constantly being tested and evaluated by the abuser. Inevitably, this interminable stress reduces the victim's resistance and her ability to see straight. The fourth type of ambient abuse involves the abuse or misuse of information. From the first moment of an encounter with another person, the abuser is on the prowl. He collects information. The more he knows about his potential victim, the better he able he is to coerce, to manipulate, to charm, to extort, to convert the victim. The abuser does not hesitate to misuse the information he has gleaned, regardless of its intimate na nature or the circumstances in which he has he had obtained the information. This is a powerful tool. Finally, there is control by proxy. If all the previous tactics fail, the abuser recruits friends, colleagues, mates, family members, the authorities, institutions, neighbors, the media, teachers, anyone, any third party, to do his bidding. He uses these people and institutions to cajole, to coerce, to threaten, to stalk, to, to offer, to retreat, to tempt, to convince, to harass, to communicate, and otherwise, in other words, to manipulate his target. He controls his unaware people and instruments exactly as he plans to control his ultimate prey. He employs the same mechanisms and devices to move his third parties and proxies around as he does later to uh, order the victim around. And he dumps his props unceremoniously when the job is done. Another form of control by proxy is to engineer situations in which the victim is forced to abuse a third party. Such carefully crafted scenarios of embarrassment and humiliation provoke inevitably social sanctions. So the victim is condemned uh, or even physically punished. Society or a social group thus become the instrument instruments of the abuser. He first provokes the victim into socially unacceptable behavior and then uses society to punish it.
Welcome. This service is provided by freeconferencecall.com. The host has not arrived yet. Please wait. Hello? Hello? My name is Sundari. I'm the author of Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited, Ambient Abuse, also known as Gaslighting. He's the stealth, subtle, underground current of maltreatment that sometimes goes unnoticed even by the victim herself until it is too late. Ambient abuse penetrates and permeates everything, but it is difficult to pinpoint and identify. Gaslighting is ambiguous, equivocal, atmospheric, diffuse, hence its immediate and pernicious effects. It is by far the most dangerous kind of abuse there is. Ambient abuse or gaslighting, they are the outcomes of fear. Fear of violence, fear of the unknown, fear of the unpredictable, the capricious, the arbitrary, the pending. Ambient abuse is perpetrated by dropping subtle hints, by disorienting, by constant and unnecessary lying, by persistent doubting and 
and by inspiring um, an air of unmitigated gloom and doom. Ambient abuse, therefore, is the fostering, the propagation and the enhancement of an atmosphere of fear, of intimidation, of instability, unpredictability, and irritation. There are no acts of traceable, explicit abuse. There are no visible manipulative settings of control. Yet ambient abuse yields an irksome feeling, a kind of disagreeable foreboding, a premonition, a bad omen. It's in the air. In the long term, such an environment erodes the victim's sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Self-confidence is shaken badly. Often the victim adopts a paranoid or a schizoid stance, keeps away from society, and thus render, renders herself exposed even more to criticism and judgment. In ambient abuse, the roles are reversed. The victim is considered by everyone to be mentally deranged and unstable, and the abuser is universally acclaimed as the suffering soul and victim. There are five categories of ambient abuse, and they are often combined in the conduct of the same abuser. First of all, there's inducing disorientation. The abuser causes the victim to lose faith in her ability to manage and to cope with the world and with its demands. She no longer trusts her own senses. Her skills, she doubts her skills, she doubts her strengths, she doubts her family, doubts her friends. The, she doubts fundamentally the predictability and benevolence of her environment. The abuser subverts the target's focus by disagreeing with her way of perceiving the world, by arguing with her judgments, by disputing the facts of her existence, by criticizing her incessantly, and by offering plausible but specious, wrong, fallacious alternatives. The abuser constantly lies, and by constantly lying, he blurs the line between reality and nightmare. By recurrently disapproving of her choices and actions, the abuser shakes the victim's self-confidence and shatters the self-esteem. By reacting disproportionately to the slightest mistake she makes, he intimidates her to the point of paralysis. Second type of gaslighting is incapacitating. The abuser gradually and surreptitiously takes over functions and chores previously adequately and skillfully performed by the victim. The victim finds herself isolated from the outer world, a hostage to the goodwill or more often the ill will of the abuser, of her captor. She's crippled by his encroachment and by the in, in, inexorable dissolution of her boundaries. And she ends up totally dependent on her tormentor's whims and desires, plans and strategies. She needs his permission to go out to the world and to interact with anyone. Moreover, the abuser engineers impossible, dangerous, and unpredictable situations that are unprecedented or highly specific. And in these situations, he makes sure that he is sorely needed. The abuser leverages his knowledge, his skill, his connections, or his traits as the only applicable and the most useful ones in the situations that he himself has engineered. The abuser generates thus his own indispensability and fosters in the victim growing dependence. The third type of ambient abuse is what is known as shared psychosis, or previously 
It was called Folie à deux in French. The abuser creates a fantasy world. And in this fantasy world, uh, this fantasy world is inhabited by himself and by his victim. And it is besieged by imaginary enemies invented by the abuser. He allocates to the abused, to the victim, the role of defending this invented and surreal universe. She must swear to secrecy. She must stand by her abuser no matter what. She must lie, fight, pretend, obfuscate, and do whatever it takes to preserve this oasis of inanity and insanity. Her membership in the abuser's kingdom is cast as a privilege and a prize, but it is not to be taken for granted. She has to work hard to earn her continued affiliation in his world. She is constantly being tested and evaluated by the abuser. Inevitably, this interminable stress reduces the victim's resistance and her ability to see straight. The fourth type of ambient abuse involves the abuse or misuse of information. From the first moment of an encounter with another person, the abuser is on the prowl. He collects information. The more he knows about his potential victim, the better he able he is to coerce, to manipulate, to charm, to extort, to convert the victim. The abuser does not hesitate to misuse the information he has gleaned, regardless of its intimate na nature or the circumstances in which he has he had obtained the information. This is a powerful tool. Finally, there is control by proxy. If all the previous tactics fail, the abuser recruits friends, colleagues, mates, family members, the authorities, institutions, neighbors, the media, teachers, anyone, any third party, to do his bidding. He uses these people and institutions to cajole, to coerce, to threaten, to stalk, to, to offer, to retreat, to tempt, to convince, to harass, to communicate, and otherwise, in other words, to manipulate his target. He controls his unaware people and instruments exactly as he plans to control his ultimate prey. He employs the same mechanisms and devices to move his third parties and proxies around as he does later to uh, order the victim around. And he dumps his props unceremoniously when the job is done. Another form of control by proxy is to engineer situations in which the victim is forced to abuse a third party. Such carefully crafted scenarios of embarrassment and humiliation provoke inevitably social sanctions. So the victim is condemned uh, or even physically punished. Society or a social group thus become the instrument of, instruments of the abuser. He first provokes the victim into socially unacceptable behavior and then he uses society to punish him.
I'm doing because I see what I'm doing based on anything my audio cortex is processing, like my internal dialogue, because subvocal speech is heard by your audio audio cortex. This is literally what I put up with just in the electronic harassment aspect of it. Then they use also, again, like I have already mentioned, they use remote neural monitoring to monitor what your plans are for the day so they can get the organized stalker along, stalkers along your route to already be there at places you're going to and your transportation routes getting there. Like if I think to myself, I'm going to go to Walmart and they know my regular routines as far as what transportation routes and where I'm at as far as where I might be hiking at, they literally put people on the, nine, on, on the 928 bus so when I get on the bus, I have to see them engage in gang stalking, organized stalking, physical gestures. It's called uh, visual anchoring and audio anchoring. The audio, anch audio anchoring is directly tied to the tactic of uh, direct conversations. And the visual anchoring has to do with where they uh, uh, anchor specific physical gestures for a target to see on a nonstop basis every single day along all of the routes throughout the whole duration of where they might be at. Whether it's on a bus route that's like if I got on a Greyhound for seven hours, I'm, I'm, a target is subject to, to, to seeing repetitive behaviors nonstop. And why do they do that? They do that in order to be able to – whenever a target is first picked, they're usually traumatized, including rape. And what they'll do when they're traumatizing a target is they'll associate certain things that are said or certain physical gestures that are done while the traumatization has taken place. As a result – the, tar uh, the target remembers the victimization and remembers the associated uh, behaviors and statements that were made as they were being traumatized. While the body stores a physiological response in reference to not only the trauma, but everything that was witnessed as the trauma was occurring. So then what they'll do is associate certain statements, uh, comments, and physical gestures when a, when a trauma is occurring and then have people get along a target's route and either have them re-mention things that were said during it, during the uh, trauma or engage, or what they'll do is reenact specific things that were done as the trauma was occurring to get the body to, to get the mind to remember it and then to have the body physiologically respond again to it because the body and the mind stored the mental pictures of, of, of what they witnessed as they were being trauma. And the body stored all the phys original physiological responses in reference to what it's seen and heard as it was being traumatized. That's like when a Vietnam vet comes back from the Vietnam War. Whenever he hears a helicopter, he's automatically brought back to that day. And, uh, you know, a lot of massive, uh, you know, shoot shooting going on around him. You know, he's in, you know, he's, he's thinking of They deliberately malice of forethought, create post-traumatic stress, and do nothing but get along your route to make a target remember. Because they get landlords on board to steal Postal employees on board steal your rent if you mailed it, like if you mailed it in the mail, certified mail return receipt. This is literally what us targets have to live with on a daily basis. They get the business community in on these uh, campaigns. Everywhere I go, I'm subject to people doing this. Another persistent technique they have used is to cough, spit, or bring their hand to their face in my presence. They have me diagnosed as mentally ill. 
saying to a mental health worker that people you don't know are making gestures to you is a diagnostic criterion for schizophrenia. You go to gangstalkingworld.com and other gang stalking sites, you'll find that these gang stalkers communicate with one another with hand signals, okay? They communicate with hand signals and for an example, um, if one of them spots the targeted individual, they look at the in the direction of that person and they do a hand signal, whether it means just come up with their mouth like this. And with the other gang stalkers, the other cult members, okay, when they see their fellow freak do this, they look in the direction that that person is looking, okay? Oh, there's the there's our target, okay? That's what he's saying. There's our target, and he's looking in the direction of our target. Okay. Everyone else who sees that person go like this, they turn and go, oh. So, as myself with the camera, and you, the target individual, can set this up, that uh, when you have a camera on these douchebags, and you're talking to people through it, you know, it's really quite easy, right? Everyone's got their back to you, except one guy, and one guy goes like this, and suddenly everyone turns, and poof, all eyes are on you? What the f*** is with that, people? It's called gang stalking. They literally ride by me as I'm sitting here making this video, and, and as they ride by me, they'll do this or this. Okay, this is done for sexual uh, inferences, you know, to make you know, you know what that represents. And this is what they do because the whole to keep you disassociated because every time you're reminded of a trauma, see when you're traumatized, your body, your mind becomes disassociated as the, tra as, as the traumatization is occurring. So whenever it's reminded about the traumatization, the mind goes right back to that disassociated state. So it's all about keeping a target crowded out from their own thinking, their own clarity, mental clarity, uh, to never let them have mental peace whatsoever because it's a computer that transmits the electronic harassment. And then they just get people in the community to harass the target in these specific ways like this and this or patting the top of their head or stroking their head back. And it's all done on a nonstop repeated basis every single day throughout the whole route, all of the routes of a target throughout the whole duration of each route. Okay, so if I'm on a bus for a half hour, I got to experience it nonstop. If I'm on a trolley for a half hour, I got to experience it nonstop. I go to USD, I experience it nonstop. I go to SCSU, I experience it nonstop. Then um, uh, I go into the bathroom. They have people come in the bathroom and do it. Uh, and this includes also direct conversation tactics. It's nonstop literal harassment between electronic harassment and the organized stalkers. And they get everybody and anybody on board uh, to do this towards targets because the intimidation and this kind of harassment is done through cost-effective means because it's done by slander. By getting people in the community to do things for them practically for free in a cost-effective manner um, because they got to make money off the target breaking down. The Medicare insurance and the eventual taking over the target's finances by claiming the target can't take care of themselves because they're homeless, even though they're the ones who created the homelessness. Yeah. So the whole goal is Medicare exploitation to take over a target social security checks through a syndicated probate attorney and a syndicated probate judge. Uh, doctors are involved in these schemes, social services workers, social security workers, police officers, firefighters, um, uh, you name it, the list goes on. All you got to do is Google everything I'm saying and cross-reference it to organized stalking and or gang stalking. My name is Dustin Williams, and this is what us targets experience on a nonstop basis every single day. Everywhere we go. So this is Fires Mission Center here, right here. And in this plaza right here that I'm gang stalked on a fever scale every time I come by here at CBS, Ralph's, and Burger King. And you can't see the Ralph's from here because it's actually that 
that building that's way over there. This is just a tidbit file. Let you know, uh, let fellow Americans know and fellow San Diegoans to know. Uh, this fantastic scene over here. I caught a worker gaslighting me as she was sitting over there with the crafted uh, harassment, overt harassment, and uh, they basically uh, target when they see that they're along their regular road, practically at least three to four times. A week. I'm entering from over at that location over there through uh, Friars Mission Center. I'll come up on the hill and they come up in the. This in turn makes the target feel stalked because they got to know where you're at in order to do it. Yeah, it's called overt situation tactics, delivered through uh, direct conversation tactics and physical gestures. And um, they also use the business community as well by putting uh, out what is known as the community notifications. And it's law enforcement tool that's looking to go to kind of public about people that are just getting out of jail that might be sexual predators, whatever. And it's to inform the community that these types of individuals are being increased in jail. But they're using it for criminal conditions to organize crime within the system. The direct human trafficking ring, service ring, prosecution ring, and the San Diego police are directly involved in the expedition. Now, Ralph is right over here. So he's going to go in there, or CBS, that's right down the road here, or in the Burger King, that's right past Ralph. I experienced by their employees, including management and people coming in acting as customers. And they come in as a result of them knowing that I frequent these businesses when I come through here. So my goal is to show you fires from the center. And this is where targets are bought. Uh, this is where I'm really subject to fevers, non-stop, organized gang stalking, sensitization tactics, physical justice, mostly, and uh, also direct conversation tactics as well. I suggest that Google and type in organized gang stalking or gang stalking and sensitization tactics. Now, another thing for you to understand, if you were to uh, Google and type in organized stalking or gang stalking at Wells, Look at how many other targets are conveying things on that well. This book is completely reference to the description of what I'm saying. So it's referenced it all to everything I've described, like remote monitoring, electronic harassment. Go to feedback loops, remote neural monitoring, remote neural influencing, remote neural stimulating, and organized stalking also called gang stalking, and you'll clearly, clearly be able to scrutinize and understand. You would not believe what they're doing to just normal, everyday citizens who do nothing wrong because they are totally 100% involved in organized crime that is within the system that is holding it, protecting it, allowing it. And making money off of it. And the people are to make money off of it. The people are to make money off of it. The people are trying to make money off of to have them discredited by one of their syndicated corrupt mental health officials. And Google organized talking and abuse talking about mental health. I'm not saying exactly what I'm talking about. My name is Jason Williams. I'm a I experience this on a daily basis and I expose this to 
to help people understand what's happening to me, my fellow targets, and to help current targets who might not understand yet what's happening to them. Thank you. Hi.
Let's start with, with some history. The very term psychosis, now technically psychotic disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 
emanates or originated in the very ancient distinction between neurosis and psychosis, which preceded actually Freud by well over 100 years. The idea was that there are situations where people compensate for problems, traumas, lacks, and that would be neurosis. They can compensate in a variety of ways. Karen Horn, I identified at least four, but all of them are neurotic ways. While in psychosis, instead of compensating for these problems, they decompensate, they disintegrate, they are overwhelmed. This is a very old distinction, which doesn't, hold, doesn't have much currency today. A much better approach to all this would be to discuss inner objects or inner representations versus uh, external objects mm. and external representations. There are mental health conditions where people confuse inner objects with external objects. Mm -hmm. If a person confuses external objects with internal objects, and really can't tell the difference at all, and even externalizes internal objects and experiences them as totally external, mm -hmm. then we can use the old label psychosis. Mm -hmm. If a confuses internal objects with external objects, mm -hmm. but still maintains some recognition when he said that, when he coined the, the word borderline, he said it's borderline between neurosis and psychosis. So, he's saying, well, it's internal, but it was caused by something external. Or they're still capable of saying, well, it's external, but it is colored by my fears, yeah. my abandonment anxiety, yeah. my... So, they are still able to maintain this reality test, to some extent, okay. not fully. And of course, you have narcissists. Where, where everything is an internal object, nothing is an external object, and you have psychopaths where everything is an external object and nothing is an internal object. Psychopaths are devoid of internal objects completely. And this was called by Franz Brentanot and other psychologists, intentionality. Psychopaths are intentionalists. In other words, all their mental processes are directed at something. So they are goal-oriented. They want money, they want sex, they want power. But there's nothing inside there. It's all the, all the objects that have any meaning to them and all the objects that help them to regulate ego functions and all the objects that constitutionality test and all the objects that help them to regulate their emotions because wants to regulate his rage, he will kill you. He will not, for example, cut himself. Or, so everything is externalized. Everything is externalized. So if I'm uh, if I'm full of rage and I want to deal with the rage, you... I would regulate the rage by consuming an external object. Right? Everything is outside him. Yeah. Money is outside him. Sex is outside him. Power is outside Other people, mm. nuisances, uh, everything is outside him. And uh, narcissist, everything is an internal object. Narcissist does not recognize your separate existence. The first thing he does, first thing he does, if he thinks you are a, source, a possible source of supply, for example, he would convert you into an internal object and he would continue the interaction with 
internal object, not with you. So narcissists, for example, would be shocked that you have an autonomous existence. Let's take an example. I'm a narcissist and you are uh, an internalized object. And we are working, we're dealing with psychology. Mm -hmm. And then I would say goodbye. And 10 years from now, I'll come back to you and say, Richard, let's make a, let's make a, a documentary about narcissism. Mm -hmm. Tell me, excuse me, mate, but I moved on to Bitcoin. I'm yeah. an expert on Bitcoin. Yeah. I'll be enraged. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how come you moved on to Bitcoin? I mean, you are in my, I mean, narcissists interact only with internal representations of external objects, never ever with the external object. Object permanence, which later came to be called object constancy, or more precisely, object inconstancy. The, the solutions are different. The, because the narcissist has only internal objects, he uses his internal object to regulate his abandonment anxiety. What he does, he mummifies you. He freezes you. He, in, he merges with you. He fuses with you. He digests you. He converts you to his extension, thereby fixating you, like embalming you, fixating you, and his abandonment anxiety is abated. Borderline, on the other hand, would, because the borderline can tell that you're an external object. The narcissist solution is shoot you in the head and then take your body, take your body and balm it and then eat it. Now you're here forevermore. Yes, narcissism is, is a form of cannibalism, mental cannibalism. The borderline solution is to say to you, listen, let's become one. Let's from now on be one organism. One. So it's a shared psychosis. What happens is the distinction between internal object and external object is so corrupted that this patient experiences the internal object as coming from the outside. So you have auditory hallucinations, which are essentially inner voices, introjects. Inner voices, but they are projected outside. They are perceived, experience, have emotional reactions, everything, as though they are external. Also, there is visual hallucinations where these people can project. So these are the gradations. I think it's much more useful to talk about all disorders in, in terms of objects, internal and external. Could you just explain to people who don't understand the difference between an internal and an external object, what, what that means uh, in practical terms? Every human being creates representations of other human beings. That is part of object relations theory. One of the first things we do, we create representations. So Kohut called it Imago, the various things. So we all create representations of other people. The reason we create these representations is, that, is to maintain continuity. Even when we don't see these people, we are able to maintain some kind of hidden, surreptitious, subterranean dialogue with these people so that when we meet them next time, we can kind of smoothly, seamlessly continue the interaction. <laughs> the, so the, the person that, that, elicit, that, that is the cause or elicits the internal object is an external person. Everyone creates internal objects, internal representations of other people. The difference between healthy people and sick people is that healthy people always maintain strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They have problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants 
to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in object relations, strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object, while sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They have problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external object. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with... the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow once... These are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in object boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object, while sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They have problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object 
with the external object, while sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what strict boundary separation between the internal and external object, they never make a mistake, they never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. With, with identifying objects as either external or internal, they're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in object boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. 
And uh, the psychopath has only external organs. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in fact boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what inflict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with identifying objects as either external or internal. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object. They never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with
tell the difference. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of presentation, pathologies of what in object boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, they have problems with, with identifying objects as either external or internal. They're problems. The psychotic cannot tell the difference at all. The narcissist has no external objects. The borderline can tell the difference, but somehow wants to partly convert external objects to internal objects by merging, fusion, form of extreme codependence. And uh, the psychopath has only external objects. So these are pathologies of representation, pathologies of what in strict boundary separation between the internal object and external object, they never make a mistake. They never confuse any aspect of the internal object with the external object. While sick people, or problematic people, or whatever you want to call it, disordered people, continue the interaction. <laughs> the, so the, the person that, that, elicit, that, that is the cause or elicits the internal object is an external person. Everyone creates internal objects, internal representations of other people. The difference between healthy people and sick people is that healthy people 